everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox, as well as the first episode coming to you between the NBA's regular season and the play-in tournament slash postseason. It's an exciting time of year as we, we gear up for the most meaningful games on the basketball calendar, uh, and we couldn't be more excited, and we're both looking behind and forward in this episode as we dive into our all defensive teams and all rookie teams. We already covered all NBA squads in a previous episode. So if you haven't heard that one, go ahead and check it out as well as subscribe to the podcast to make sure you're not missing any other episodes. We're available basically everywhere at that point. Dan will have more details on that later. Uh, But we're also going into some mailbag questions as well, which are you know, inevitably looking back at the regular season and forward into the postseason. So a lot of stuff to be excited about in this episode, even though there were some difficult choices, as always, on these all-whatever teams. Before we dive into any of that, I have to ask our resident tank, Dan, how's it going? I am tired. I am also helped someone move a very modest amount of furniture uh, into their new house yesterday, so I could barely get through my leg workout today years old, and I'm not happy about it. That kind of invalidates the tank thing. Yeah, Dan, look, I've been posting. This will be a great plug. Go follow us everywhere. YouTube, Hardwood Knox, they're all in the description. Instagram, at Hardwood underscore Knox. TikTok, at Hardwood Knox. I've been posting exclusive content to IG and TikTok this past week. So I'll try and do that a couple times a week. And someone reached out, Ben, I won't name their full name, and said that they agreed with my thoughts on the Lakers and that I was looking like a tank. I immediately told Adam about it. I also told my older sister, who's a workout freak as well. And she says, I think that means fat. And then I I had a few choice words for her after she said that. But so that was fun. But I did not feel like a tank today. I felt very old. How are you doing? I'm good. Got to go on a nice hike this morning. Um, Ready to talk some basketball. It's been a weird week for me. Um, You know, we there was some some work stuff that came up towards the end of the week and we had to to have have some layoffs um of people who i really like and respect at the end of the week at sports casting so shout out to all of them um you know if if you're looking for for good writers both about basketball and other sports go give them follows i would echo all that we're gonna get into the all rookie all defense stuff first which one did you and we'll go through quickly since the regular season is over and we went in depth on all nba all the awards already and more I think in depth all, than we all even rookie expected. teams specifically i think like everyone who listened to that podcast kind of knows where this is going but do you want to start there all rookie yeah so all rookie first team i think it's pretty obvious um for at least for the first four spots i would say scotty barnes evan mobley kid cunningham and then franz wagner Wagner isn't quite in that same top tier as the other three for the rookie of the year race. His scoring talent has just been on full display all season long. He's played a pretty big role for an admittedly struggling Orlando magic team. He, if he isn't on your first team, you've filled out the ballot wrong. You should go back and fix that. Uh, The fifth spot is the one that I thought was at least a little bit up in the air. Um, If you want to make an argument for Josh Giddy given the passing he's put on display for the Thunder throughout the season. I get it. If you want to have Jalen Green, who has just been a phenomenal lights-out scorer for the Houston Rockets during the second half of the season, likewise, I get it. I, I still view these awards as recognition of the totality of the season, which is why I still have Herb Jones earning that final first-team spot. One of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA this season. He just seems to appear out of nowhere to disrupt passing lanes, gets his hands in all sorts of places you just wouldn't expect during the flow of a normal possession. Just incredibly disruptive and also pretty good on the ball for a first-year guy with some offensive skill, even if that's by no means his calling card. So it wasn't an easy decision to put him here, but it also wasn't like a difficult one for me. Yeah, I mean, you have to. I I view it like you do when I'm looking at the totality of the seasons, and it really I struggled with the Jalen Green versus Herb Jones thing on the first team specifically uh, because Jalen Green has been lights out over the past two months or so. But you also have to look at the difficulty that was ascribed to his offensive role that Herb Jones doesn't have. Now, with that in mind, was it? It was a difficult role for Jalen Green, but it was also a freedom that a lot of other players don't get to enjoy as well. And I think you have to look at it as like, you know, Herb Jones was among like 
players who actually logged at least a thousand minutes this year, he was in the top five of matchup difficulty on defense. That matters. That I I think we can all agree that great offense is going to be more valuable than great defense. But you had one of the hardest, highest volume defensive roles in the league as a rookie. I ended up putting him there too, especially because I thought as the season went on, he's, he showed just enough on offense to make it easier, I think, for me than it was for you. I'm going to go into my second. I had the same exact first team as you. So I'm going to give you. I'm not surprised. I'm going to give you who is on my second team. And I'm curious as to know what your honorable mentions would be because I know you went to a third team. I have Jalen Green, Io DeSunmu, Bones Highland, Josh Giddy, and Alperin Shangoon. I thought about Jonathan Kaminga here, but I don't think he, my last inclusion was Shangoon, who's been really good, just sort of a lower volume role. And he also, though, the totality of his work probably outstrips that of Bones Highland too. Um, so those were probably like the two that could have been bounced if you really wanted to, but I just don't know that Kaminga really had like a steady enough role. And I will say the one that I think you, I think Josh Giddy's a have to have to have to include. I don't want to say that he's become overrated, but like, you know, he was, he had sub 50 crew shooting is not great. The one that has to be on here is Io DeSunmu. Just yes. absolutely. Fa- he oh, and, and Jalen Green. Because Jalen we considered yeah. him for the first team. Uh, I was like guarding every position. And it wasn't just like he was able to, like he was handling the ball for mm-hmm. Chicago. He was making passes, like serving as like the primary playmaker at times. I, I can like the putting, peak version of the Bulls too. Yeah. Not, was, not just like the lesser one that we've seen in recent weeks. Right. And it was also, I mean, it was born from necessity because they had so many injuries, but like that's even more important that he came in and was able to have that type of impact. Leaving him off the first team was also like really tough mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. My only discrepancy was I did have Shengun on my honorable mentions, my de facto third team in favor of Kaminga. And that's the debate I had internally. Ultimately, I think Kaminga did enough in high leverage situations because he started to fill a bigger role when the Warriors were suffering through some injuries and trying to stay afloat in the top half of the Western Conference, that he did play some impactful, meaningful minutes and looked good doing it. An easier role, most likely, but the minutes mattered. Um, Shengun peaked pretty early and just has either flown beneath the radar or just not quite been as effective at various points throughout the second half of the season, just kind of lost a little bit of steam. Still obviously looks like a a long-term rotation player, high-end rotation player in Houston. Uh, The other honorable mentions I had, because uh, I did do that third team. So Shengun headlined it. But then I had Austin Reeves, Chris Duarte, Zaire Williams, and have to give a shout out to Jose Alvarado, who, if he had gotten this role that he's had midway through the season, as opposed to in the final third of the season, he might be displacing someone on the second team. Because what a what a find undrafted out of Georgia Tech. Some of the the plays that he's put together where he kind of hides in the corner and then snakes behind a guy and steals steals it as they're dribbling up the court. So smart, so unique. And it's it's been really fun to watch him carve out a big role. Duarte was a really tough person to leave out of this exercise he was. entirely. He was. That was the I mentioned Kaminga, but the ones that I have in notes is he's right there. And I thought about putting him over Shangu for some reason, Bones Highland was more of a no brainer inclusion for me than Shangun. So I don't, I don't really know what that says that it was, it was really super tough. I think most might probably have Bones Highland um, out and would put Chris Duarte in would be my guess where our biggest discrepancies it's, come it's in. It's going to be an interesting one there. I, I, I think that it'll be two of the three between Highland, Shangun, and Kamega. Nothing for Davion Mitchell for you. I actually wanted to find a way to include him, but bumped him out for Austin Reeves for the final spot on my third team. Yeah, I mean Austin Reeves or even Trey Mann deserve. I don't know if you mentioned him. If you did, then I, I did not I apologize. But th- this this rookie class is so fun and so deep. Like there, are, I mean, even beyond the names we're throwing out now, there there are more who look like they they will contribute. Kessler Edwards, like Kessler Edwards, is just. It's like you look at this and. And Jose Alvarado, by the way, was a good mention. He's a very entertaining watch. If anyone is really into just like small dudes who work their asses off, Jose Alvarado is is the guy. But like you just look at, and I know he wasn't in this draft class or anyone who's going to be like, well, actually, when you just go up and down like the names, and I don't know if this is super recency bias, but you go through just like the rookies that have played minutes this year, and it's like, are there like 40 rotation players from right. the draft right. The other thing is like, he didn't have a big role. I really love Jalen Johnson. 
in Atlanta. I think that's someone who's going to wind up panning out and perhaps this, and Usman Garuba in Houston, like perhaps this is all just like hunky dory. Jalen Suggs. I still believe in him, even if he's, oh, he's had a bad be, rookie season. He's he'll be, be fine. fine. Yeah. He'll, he'll be, be t- totally fine. Book night too. And so, uh, yeah, this is rookie. This is going to be interesting. And I know John Hollinger, the athletic actually already wrote about this, but if we like, I want, well, I don't want to, cause I'll be old again. I feel washed now, but skip ahead like three or five years and then go look back at this rookie class. That's going to be an interesting exercise. So I'll start us off with first team all defense since you did first team all rookie. Uh, I had Mikael Bridges as my defensive player of the year. So of course he was going to be a first team guard for me. Related positions are stupid and we should get rid of them. Marcus Smart was my other guard. I think that should make you happy. I had Rudy Gobert as my center. Giannis as a forward. And I had Jaron Jackson Jr. as my other forward. I do think we've had this mentioned in the Discord a few times and I've, I've seen Grizzlies Twitter get like, I don't want to say up in arms because that's a criticism, but Grizzlies Twitter has come out and said, Jaron Jackson Jr. needs more support for defensive player of the year. I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, He's been spectacular. He was not my defensive player of the year. I don't even think I had him in my top three. If I went back and watched more, maybe he would, but I feel like there's a certain simplicity to not simplicity. This is going to get me in so much trouble. I just, when I'm looking at Gobert, Giannis and Mikhail Bridges, I view their roles as exponentially harder than what Jaron Jackson Jr. did in Memphis. And he was, he kept lineups afloat without Morant. He kept lineups afloat without Morant, like even playing in certain games. That's part of why the Grizzlies were so good. So I'm, I don't want to take away anything from him. He's on my first team all defense. If you disagree with anything I said, he's still made my first team all, all defense. You, you you put the shovel down eventually there. It took some time, but you got it. You got it. Yeah, I just, I was surprised at how many people, I think even, I've seen some people that have been one on their defensive player of the year rank. I, that was Which a little bit surprising for me. I think that's fine this year where there are like six candidates where I think you can reasonably argue them at number one. Um, I had the same guards, Marcus Smart and Mikhail Bridges. My forwards, I had Giannis and Bam Adebayo, though Jaron Jackson Jr. was a tough exclusion there. And I had Robert Williams III at my center spot. So they're all such minor discrepancies here because everyone you mentioned who I didn't have is on my second team. My second team, I had Fred Van Fleet, Matisse Teibel, Jaron Jackson Jr., Joel Embiid. If he's eligible at forward for all NBA, then we can do the same here. And then Rudy Gobert. So all the same names, just slightly different orders. So my second team sort of deviated. I didn't have Robert Williams on any of my all defensive teams. Well, you're just wrong. I I still think he's your most egregious awards pick would would be my default here but so my my second team guards were drew holiday and fred van fleet uh i know drew holiday there are points where i don't know that he struggled but it was just he couldn't be as aggressive as i think he was as he used to be because of what was happening behind mm-hmm. him but he adjusted to that and he is still one of the just most unstoppable if you included guards. only like the last month then he's a first teamer for sure i mean if you put Drew Holiday, I'm trying to think of who I would bounce. I don't, it wouldn't be an egregious pick if you said, hey, Drew Holiday needs to be on there over, I mean, Marcus Martin, Mikael Bridges. No, I'd, I'd probably push back against that. Sorry, I tracked that. I'd well, you can move Mikael Bridges to forward and you'd be fine. There you go. Just quietly a defensive monster too. Uh, has that Kyle Lowry energy to him where it's just like defend at all costs, even to the detriment of his body. It mm. does feel like sometimes. So that was, this was the guard spot that gave me trouble. I haven't seen Seibel as a forward. I don't know if he's going to be eligible at forward, but he should be. Uh, if he's not... Related w- positions are dumb. If he's not, I would have had him over Van Fleet to make that clear. And I would have probably went with Joel Embiid, who did not make it because I have Bam Adebayo and Evan Mobley surrounded my front court. I think either of them will be eligible at center. I think Bam has played more center than Evan Mobley, who spent a ton of time alongside Jared Allen. The stuff Mobley has done, and he would be the first rookie to make an all-defense team since Tim Duncan, which happened quite a while ago. I can't just get off of how like all-encompassing his role is, where it's like he's a wing and he's a guard, but he can also be a big. And I know there's been some drop-off from the Cavaliers when they don't have Jared Allen, but he's still been able to keep certain lineups afloat. Uh, just the positional... It's not even malleability. It's just obfuscation in what he does. Like I can watch him play defense and just come away exhausted from that experience and impressed, obviously, at how exhausted I am. By no means an egregious inclusion. Um, For my my third team, my honorable mentions, I had Drew Holiday, Herb Jones, Evan Mobley, Al Horford, and Jared Allen. So again, like minor discrepancies. Mobley's incredible. I think that 
I, I, I feel like there's a chance that either him or Herb Jones makes this probably Mobley is the better candidate for the actual voters, just because he has been in the spotlight for a much larger portion of this season, even though Herb Jones, I would argue has been every bit as good, maybe in a slightly less impactful role, just because he doesn't spend time around the rim like Mobley does. Um, but holiday and, and Mobley were the two toughest for me to not include on my actual second team. I did consider putting Herb Jones over Van Fleet where I would have moved Tybal to guard. And I was just like, I don't know if I was too much of a coward to have two rookies on my all defensive <laughs> team, but that is something that I actually considered. Yeah. And, and get, deservedly so. Let's get into the mailbag and we'll start with, and I'm going back here because we haven't done a mailbag in a while. We've been so busy with other podcasts. Uh, and we'll begin with the Discord questions. Uh, ATX Patty asked for our biggest disappointment of the season and biggest surprise of the season. ATX Patty gave theirs, which was how dominant the Suns have been in the clutch was their biggest surprise. And the biggest disappointment was the Lakers, but also not really getting to see the Bulls all healthy. Yeah, I think my biggest disappointment, <laughs> I say, while wearing an Atlanta Hawks hat has been the Hawks. because. I've, I fully expected this team, which featured so much continuity, um, most significantly from every notable player who did a lot of good things during an Eastern Conference Finals run that ended at the hands of the Milwaukee Bucks last season, to be back in that top half of the Eastern Conference, maybe even competing for a top two seed. And instead, the Hawks are, you know, I, I have not paid attention to the scores yet today, but they're, they're in the play-in tournament. I don't know exactly what number it's going to be. We will at the time of this being released. So apologies for the lack of detail there, but they, they do have to play in the play in tourney just to make the postseason proper. And that is a massive disappointment. Trey young has had an incredible season, but it feels like everyone else around him has not. Uh, Clint Capella has really been unable to perform like he did last year. I think he came into the year a little bit hobbled, struggled to get going, just hasn't looked as explosive as he did during that 2020-21 campaign. Uh, Anyeka Okongwu has not really taken that step forward that was necessary to replace the diminished production from Capella. Uh, DeAndre Hunter has not taken that stride forward. Cam Reddish no longer plays in Atlanta, even though he was expected to be another breakout candidate. It, it feels like that that guard rotation behind Trey Young has not really solidified, where it's still just a mishmash of pieces, all of whom struggle to find consistency. So this Hawks team has just been nowhere close to the expected level. Could still be a pretty tough out in the playoffs should they make it because Young is that explosive and is that good at diagnosing a defense and adjusting how he dominates on offense that you do not want to face him in a sec in a seven game series. But this season has just been an unmitigated disaster. I would argue even beyond the level of disaster we've seen from the Lakers who we were both low on picking them more as like a team that should finish around like six to eight, the number one in the Western conference, even before the season had started and the Brooklyn nets, because while they have also fallen so far short of expectations that at least can be more easily explained away. We ident we identified them as a as a potential risky team to have in the very top of your Eastern Conference standings because of the injury concerns. That was before Kyrie Irving decided that he wasn't going to play basketball for most of the season. So I don't view those as disappointments on the same monumental level. I would mostly agree with you. I think I actually picked the over for the Lakers. I don't know if I was tripping acid when we did that podcast. So I'm just, this is to call myself it's a safe out, bet. not you. They are a disappointment though, because they were this bad. They, like we're talking. Oh, it's definitely still a disappointment. Um, but the biggest one. So my biggest one was actually the Hawks. I'm just going to throw in some other nominations. Cause I don't have anything to add other than the Hawks defense for most of the season, like against live balls. If you watch them, if they're committing a turnover, if they miss a shot, it has, I have not looked at the data on this in quite some time. So I haven't needed to write about it. I would almost bet obscene amounts of money that they're like in the bottom two of the league and just live ball defense. They're so bad. And which is disappointing. And addition to everything you said, I do think the Lakers are a disappointment. I think the nets are actually a candidate as an answer here though, because just the way the James Harden stuff fizzled out the Kyrie Irving situation, the tone deafness 
of that yeah. all. And then just yeah. also sort of looking at, I know they were banged up and now they're getting some really good play out of Nicholas Claxton, but it was just like their front court rotation has been a, a mismatch. Their defense really deteriorated as the season went on. Some of it can be explained away by injuries. The Joe Harris one is not something that you expect. He only appears in 14 games. However, it's like you said at the top, you have to at least account for some level of absences here because this is now the third year. And that this includes the year that he missed the entire one where Durant has missed extensive time. Mm-hmm. You have to like, that's a part of it. Kyrie Irving has always had stuff. And then James Harden was dealing with hamstring injuries before even coming into this season. But then they're just a disappointment overall because it's like you, the three stars couldn't get on the same pit. They were championship inevitables coming into the season. Right. And now entering the final day of the season, they were aspiring seven seeds basically as well. That's like, I understand a lot of shit happened, but that still based on all that, it was a disappointment to me. Um, I think you could also throw in the, you you could maybe throw in the Blazers. Don't say the Knicks. Okay, good. No, look, we both, (laughs) I think you can throw in the Knicks in the sense that I'm not surprised they missed the playoffs. Remember at the beginning of the season, Mm -hmm. my prediction was the Raptors would win more games than the Knicks and then win a playoff series. That might be the only prediction I get right. Although who knows if they win their first round playoff series. The Knicks are disappointing and they were on my list because they're, they just can't get out of their own way. There's always extracurricular like ass hattery going on there where it's, why are you giving up a first round pick for Cam Reddish? Why was it a thing? He was dealing with injuries beforehand. Wasn't good beforehand. And that's look, I hope Cam Reddish ends up panning out and I hope he makes a lot of money in his next contract, whatever. That was just like terrible management to not really move off any veterans at the deadline Yes, you're still giving opportunities to the kids now, but a person like Alec Burks, yeah, his value has come a little bit up in recent weeks, but he might have been most valuable leading into that. Um, What is going on with Julius Randle there? Is there a real disconnect between Tibbs and the front office? And just the fact that they weren't able to sort of properly evaluate their season in time. It took them too long to get to the point that they did. I don't think they're the biggest disappointment because as you said, I think we expected them to regress as a team, but progress isn't linear. And they really, you know, RJ Barrett came on after the new year. But aside from that, like the team itself, when you take away the record, it took too long for them to show that more complicated progress, or at least as a team, I'm talking about the front office or the coaching staff, whatever, just the comprehension of where they actually were at. And my last one, I think you could throw Portland in here, by the way. I think that's legitimate. Um, Utah. Just the way that things have unraveled there and their defense without Rudy Gobert has been bad. The fact that they still just have a lot of issues in transition, even when he's on the court, because like that, your big isn't going to be able to on live balls, especially after turnovers um, when he's tasked with rebounding on the inside, their perimeter players got to be smarter about getting back. And don't tell me it's like, oh, Rudy Gay missed so much time. Like it was even when Rudy Gay was healthy and they were trying to run more stuff through him, they never really seemed married to small ball. Those lineups didn't work out. Hassan White has been the, their backup center predominantly. I know Daniel House has had some really good moments there, but they did nothing of significance at the trade deadline. Trading Joe Ingles for Nikhil Alexander Walker always to me felt like more of a tax dump than it was, oh, we believe in Nah. We'll see if I'm wrong there. And when you have a title window that's actually open, you need to be more aggressive. Mm-hmm. You're already mm-hmm. paying the tax. We commended, or at least I did, Utah for paying the tax as that type of market in a Western conference like this. You're also in a Western conference that doesn't have a full strength nuggets or clippers. The time is now like it was like you were already operating on borrowed time in a sense. So to do really nothing of significance around the Ted uh, trade deadline to elevate your championship chances to the point where now we're hearing about bleacher reports. Jake Fisher came on the podcast and said, that Quinn Snyder is a real flight risk, that he doesn't know the exact terms of his contract, but he can be a free agent after this season. If Quinn Snyder can be a free agent after this season, my guess is that he fucking leaves. And so I just feel like just the jazz, there's been some weird stuff behind the scenes. And I don't even think it's the Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, whatever. They're clearly not the best of friends, but sometimes they eat together. That's all that matters. Sometimes they eat at the same table, Adam. That's all that matters. I just feel I, like I have trouble season- saying they're the... I just feel I have trouble like, saying they're a biggest disappointment. They're definitely a disappointment, but like still pushing toward fifty wins, pick. still an offensive juggernaut. They were your title. Still going to avoid no the play in the tournament. Title. I know. I agree. That's a disappointment. They're a disappointment. They're not the biggest disappointment. That's my, my only they're, pushback. They're a nomination. I know. All I would say. I know. Uh, and then I like as I already mentioned, Portland is probably on that spectrum. Yeah. There might be some Wizards fans who are disappointed based off how the start of the season mm-hmm. went. Too better then. 
What's actually surprises is interesting. I was going to say, I, this was not my pick. I wanted to throw it out there really quickly. The Pelicans should be in the aforementioned discussion, and they're not. They have a better case to be in this discussion when you look at how Willie Green has like, gotten them to try um, in transition defense. Uh, the way that they kind of dug themselves out of the early season hole, finding Herb Jones, Jose Alvarado. I don't love the look of Jackson Hayes and Jonas Alantunas playing together, but there have been moments where it's worked, where Hayes of the four doesn't look abysmal. Brandon Ingram making a leap as a playmaker, trying harder on defense. They are a borderline pleasant surprise for me mm -hmm. with the caveat of, would you have guessed Zion wouldn't play this year? Exactly. And the answer would be no, because he was there at media day saying he thinks he's going to be ready for the season or David Griffin said that or whoever. So they're a, they were not my pick, but I just wanted to throw them out there. It's just a, it's impressive. They could be in the discussion. Yeah, I think they absolutely should be in the conversation. I would say that the Bulls and the Cavs both belong in the conversation. Memphis belongs in the conversation, even though they were my biggest overlock possible going into the year. Um, for they're me, second like, in the West, how are they not? They're the second in the West. I think they're my backup choice. Uh, Ooh, I, I actually choice? still have. I still have the Timberwolves here because I did not anticipate this team coming together this quickly and this well. Where all of a sudden we talked about how they had to make so much progress on defense in particular. Patrick Beverly, Jared Vanderbilt, and the rest of this team have coalesced into an above average defensive team. They're number 14 in defensive rating. Carl Anthony Towns playing with an edge, still finding a way to make D'Angelo Russell look good. Anthony Edwards to, you know, admittedly have an up and down season, but the ups have looked really good. And this is a dangerous, legitimate playoff team at this point in the season, which I I, I would I would have had them on the outside of that play, playoff picture rather easily going into the season. This is also just a byproduct of how high I was on Memphis because we had off-season argument after off-season argument in which I was like, please keep this team together. I don't want to see any big moves. Didn't anticipate this level of leap to number two in the Western Conference and legitimate title contender. But I think the gap between my expectations and where the team actually sits was bigger for Minnesota. I will abstain from ever picking the Grizzlies over under again because they're, <laughs> they're just, I'm just going to be wrong. Uh, I, I'm surprised you went with the Timberwolves because I view this like we do the awards where you want to look at it in totality and the Timberwolves finishing seventh is not like mm -hmm. this huge shock to me. I thought you were going to go with the heat being first because of all those, I mean, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, Bam Adebayo, all missed time with injuries slash personal reasons. Uh, I actually just went with the Grizzlies, but they're second in the West. John misses. I don't even remember how many games he missed at this point. But it was over That's the most surprising part their record is that with, they've been so good even without him. Well, that plus the, you know, I was talking about how high I was on Desmond Bain after the summer league. And then he just goes and blows those expectations out of the water. Even if he slowed down a little bit in the middle of the year right. and then picked back up towards the end. I just, even Zaire Williams has looked a lot better than I expected this year. Everyone thought that pick was egregious. Steven Adams, we just, well, maybe we didn't annihilate them, but we were not high on that trade at all. He comes in and I don't know that you could say he's, he's a better defense. You can say he's a better defender than Jonas Valanciunas. It's not so clear. Like, Oh, they fleece the Pelicans. No, like, you know, it's, Steven Adams was a better fit in Memphis than he ended up being in, in New Orleans. So I just, knowing all that, like they're second in the West, like they're just, they're second in the West. I don't know how they're not the biggest surprise of the year. And I understand you were high on Memphis to begin with, but I'm just looking at like even John Moran, I never would have picked him as the betting favorite for most improved player this year because of how good he already was. Totally fair. I, I, th I think if you went back and listened to our offseason previews and like the, the over under episodes and stuff, it would feel hypocritical for me to pick Memphis here because I was just so far in their camp at was, every step of the way. I was also going to say Cleveland certainly belongs here. I, I can't, I've seen like stuff from their fans on Twitter that they're mad at how the rest of the season has gone. It's like you dealt with all these injuries and you're ahead of schedule relative to like where you were supposed, mm -hmm. like you can't, it's not all of a sudden, Oh, this team won game. So the fact that they're not a title contender is bullshit. The bulls I was going to push back on, but I remember how both of us were so low on them. Yeah. And I think even their best case outcome would probably be around 45, 46 victories. The thing is, is they dealt with like, two would have been all defense players probably in Lonzo Ball and Alex Crusoe missing and a ton of time. Even beyond that, like I, we both interpreted this question as team centric. That wasn't actually specified. 
I think you can make a case that DeMar DeRozan is the single biggest surprise this season. I mean, how many outlets had him as maybe the worst free agent move of the entire offseason? And he was in the MVP discussion and is probably going to get some back of the ballot votes after another surge toward the end of the year. Like he's been unbelievably good. That's and a good that was not what was supposed to happen. That was a good point because he's go- and he's going to make an all NBA team. I would be, he was one of like my mm-hmm. agonizing final picks, but he's, I think we both know that like he's going to make the, the NBA team. This next question is fascinating from Strops. Where would you rank AD after this fe- oh, this season? Top 15, top 20, et cetera. I would still have him in the top 15. Ultimately, ultimately, he is a There's- ridiculously good Robin. He's not, he's not the Batman. He, he is not going to... No Chris Middleton. He's a Giannis. He's the Robin. Got it. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's, he's not going to carry a team by himself, but if you put him next to any sort of talent, he's going to look really good. And he was still a, a, an incredibly positively impactful player when available. And it's the availability that's the question more than the skill set. And those are legitimate concerns. He's definitely slow to recover. He's definitely, you know, subject to a lot of minor ailments that keep him off the floor. But when he plays, he's a top 10 guy. No, he's not. Let's, it's, it's time to stop that. It's over. It's done. He's not top 10 anymore. You need to like have some semblance of self-sustaining offense to be top 10. And let's, let's just think about the names. Jokic, Giannis, Embiid, Doncic, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph. That's nine. You're going to tell me that you're picking no, seven. Not. Okay, I, can't yeah. fucking, I top, can't fucking count. Top, <laughs> top 15. Top 15 is more fair than top 10. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Would you rather have Anthony Davis or LeBron next year? Uh, LeBron. It's not even yeah, a question. I know. I'm kidding. Uh, here, I actually have questions for you that I think kind of determine this. Would you rather have... And I feel like these, would you rather have next season, Anthony Davis or Carl Anthony Towns? Towns. Would you rather have Anthony Davis or Pascal Siakam? I'd still rather have Davis there. That's interesting. Would you rather have Anthony Davis or James Harden? Davis. Would you rather have Anthony Davis or Paul George? Still Davis. I don't agree with that one. I don't know that I agree. It's a pretty close one. Anthony Davis or Kawhi? Kawhi. And that bounces Davis out of the top 10 immediately there. Cool. Would you rather so, have yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll rescind top 10. Oh, I stand I, by, I stand by right around 15. I'm just, I have, I have two final ones. Anthony Davis or Trey Young next year. Davis. Wow. Anthony Davis or Devin Booker next year. Booker. He's t- I would go top 20 for me with Davis. Uh, we got to stop calling him a top 10 player. It's, and look, I, maybe he comes back and he's a monster as a revenge season, but like, it's, it's time. It's, he's the a tra- great the player. The train is tough because there's so much schematic difficulty that you have to have building a team around Trey and that you don't have with Davis where you just need another big, big time talent, but it doesn't really matter what role that big time talent fills. Wait, can, so, <laughs> Here's my thing is that if Anthony Davis is your best player versus if Trey Young is your best player, if they're your only stars, which if team they're is more your only to make stars than you want? If they're your only stars, then you want Trey. You don't think Trey's is easy to fit alongside other stars? I, I don't because I think that if you don't That's put fair. the right pieces around him, you you cap the ceiling pretty low. I'm just if if you put anything around Davis, like he's not going to lift you to a title, but it's going to be a good team. I, as long as he stays healthy. We got to get off this section before I say something stupid because I'm thinking about like, would you rather have like, there's Jason Tatum, there's Jimmy Butler. Would you rather have Anthony Davis? I'd rather have Tatum. I would rather have Davis than Butler. I think I'm with you there, but like the names are getting so steeped. I'm about to say some pretty egregious things about <laughs> Anthony Davis' ranking. So I, I feel like we should move on. Would uh, you rather have Anthony Davis or Frank Nielakina? Oh, that's a Frank Nielakina, but that's, that's cool. not fair. That's I just had to make sure. Uh, ATX Anthony Patty Davis also- or Julius Randle? Oh, Anthony Davis. 
ATX Patty also asked, is Doc Rivers the next coach of the Lakers? Who wants that gig? I mean, there'll be coaches that want that gig because you still presumably get to coach LeBron for at least another two years. I don't think it's going to be Doc Rivers because no. that would be like a really bad decision. I was just <laughs> stop myself from saying something ridiculous. We got oh, even even beyond that, like the Lakers as an organization more so than any other, like having their own in that role. And Doc Rivers doesn't have Lakers ties. And also, it would be the it would be the wrong decision, especially if Quinn Snyder is right. going to be a free agent. If you don't throw the bag at him, although I kind of feel like what LeBron does on offense might go against literally everything Quinn Snyder might want to do <laughs> on offense. But I don't think. Do you think Doc Rivers will be the coach of the Sixers? Might be the better question next season. Yeah, I do. I do. I think he. I think he has enough time with this team. That's all right. That's fair. Uh, other questions here that we have, this one comes from Luke J 37 Tibbs might go from winning coach of the year to getting fired the next season. Has that ever happened before? Uh, I feel like, what does this say? Sorry. Feels like when a coach gets that kind of accolade, they're often given the benefit of the doubt, at least a season or two. I think Dwayne Casey would disagree. And there was, who was it in Memphis that won it? That wasn't Jaeger. Who was the one before? Lennon Lionel Hollins win coach of the year and then got canned. I think so. There was a point where, and then D'Antoni too. Like there was yeah, a it's, point. It's where, not as uncommon as you would think. Yeah, there was a point where Coach of the Year felt like it was cursed. Let's see, Lionel Hollins. If I the, can the, the Dwayne, to pull this up, the Dwayne Casey one was so awkward. I remember that the Raptors tweeting out the congratulations. <laughs> it was just so. It wasn't Hollins because he never won Coach of the Year. Then why am I missing? Am I like conflate? I must be conflating him with someone else. So, but it happened to D'Antoni, did it not? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, things change quickly on the coaching ranks. And beyond that, like it's easier to scapegoat the coach than any player because you can, you know, even if you have a 20 year deal with a coach, you can cut ties and survive that. But you, you can't really do that with a player. It's also the thing you can, can you can change. Mm-hmm. The Lakers would be a perfect example. I don't want to talk about the Lakers too much, but just moving on from Frank Vogel is exponentially easier and more controllable than moving on from Russell Westbrook. The Not first time that's the first time that controllable and Russell Westbrook have been in the same sentence. Next question comes from uh, Ben Bender fan, uh, and this was an interesting question. Da da da. Where is it? Oh, for Josh Jump to start him in year three from possible all-star to top 10, he put that in a question mark in the MVP race. Do you see this happening to anyone else? Cough, LaMelo, cough. But in all honesty, I think the way this is best analyzed is how often do people make that kind of jump in year three? Yeah, I feel like anecdotally, it's it's pretty frequently. Like that's the, the, the year, one, the one to two jump is the one that people expect where you're going to become like a good NBA player rather than a rookie going through significant obstacles. But year two to three, like we, we've talked about in most improved player discussions, how it might be worth ruling out those third year players, because that is when that leap to like true stardom happens in a lot of situations. I was just going to say what makes it so unique is how often does it really, maybe it happened with Luca, but how often does Jaws type of leap happen though, where he's already a top 10 MVP candidate by year three? Infrequently, definitely infrequently. And, and when it does, they end up getting that MIP love like Jai is this year. Who do you think among candidates for next year has the best chance of, if anybody? Who are you considering candidates? I, the sophomores who are heading into year three. It would have to, I guess it'd be LaMelo Ball or Anthony Edwards would be the only two. Or even if you're, I mean, you could kind of think about like, this year's rookies, if you actually think that one of them by year three is going to be an MVP candidate. Yeah, I mean, I'm just just looking through like the top players from that 2019 draft. Well, here, let's I guess it, it would be it would be the 2020 draft, right? Yeah. So let's do it this way. I'm going to give you. I mean, does Zion count? <laughs> because he would technically be. Well, OK, so let's in his go. third year. Oh, well, because he missed all of this one. Yeah. Speed count. Let's throw him in there. So let's say this. Zion, Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards. Who is more likely to make an MVP-type jump 
by their third season. And again, I know that this is Zion's third season. Wow. He hasn't played. Um, are we including Tyrese Halliburton there too? If you want to, but he clearly should not be the pick. He's not the answer. But I'm just I feel saying. like he's at least in the discussion. Um, I think Cunningham is. I think Cunningham is the guy I'm most confident makes a leap of that magnitude. Just because the feel that he has for the game without like super noticeable weaknesses at this point is just unreal. I still have I still have concerns about the sustainability like of like LaMelo watch- Ball's scoring. I was about to say, I, th- I think it's really cool that you think people are going to watch the Pistons enough to view Kate Cunningham as a MVP candidate. And that's, they will when they're a good team and uh, they have some, clear, some good pieces there. To be clear, that's a shot, not at the Pistons or their fans, but some of just like Pistons related takes that I've seen on the internet this year. Anyway, please carry on. I, 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 Mobley is my probably, my, I love this rookie class so much. So like, you think I, it's going to be like, you would, you would say, I feel like I, I could make a case for like, Cade, Mobley, and Barnes uh, my ahead is, of anyone else. My pick is Barnes. I, th- I think this is really tough. I could see Zion doing it, and maybe I, I'm not picking him because in my head I'm like, he's headed into year four, it's over. Right. Uh, after Scotty Barnes, I think it would probably be Cade or LaMelo. But, uh, this is, I'm just going to name I it. think Edwards is Mobley. a more likely candidate than, than Ball. That's what I was thinking too. My pick is Scotty Barnes just because he, if you also factor in their playing for a really good team, having to be part of the mm-hmm. MVP discussion, the Raptors are a great bet there, more so than probably any of the other teams on this list. Edwards, I feel like we haven't talked about enough relative to this. Kate Cunningham, based on talent and game and just the scope of his impact, I think it should be him. But I'm kind of trying to wait like the team aspect of it all. And is Detroit going to be really good by year three? If, if they are, I mean, Kate Cunningham might need to be the MVP. I'm also just not willing to rule Halliburton out here. I mean, since he's arrived in Indiana, like averaging like just about 18 and 10, keeping the turnovers in check, showing a lot more on-ball creation, flirting with 50, 40, 90. There's a lot to like there. And I think he's way better at excelling within a number of different roles than we expected because the appeal to him was that he could fit into any number of roles. Why do you have LaMelo so low on this list? I just, I wonder how much further he can take his offensive game because he's already such a ball dominant presence in Charlotte and is benefiting a lot from like some of the players around him where the the talent fits so well. I just don't know how much more he's going to grow. Like obviously he's going to keep getting better and keep growing. I don't know that he has that like seismic leap as a scorer that some of these other guys have. So he needs a size of his league, even though he's averaging already 22.3 points for 36 minutes. Like you don't see him. Yes, because he needs to get to, he needs to get to 30 <laughs> to have that MVP case. I think I could see him a scenario where he's finishing better at the rim, getting to the foul line more. And we see that they would, I will agree with you that it probably requires sort of a shift in mindset from him, but this is also someone who I think can probably be like really good defensively one day just because of how disruptive that his length and size can yeah, make him with the position that he's he's playing. I have ball ahead of Halliburton in this conversation to be clear. Well, I just I, I think Halliburton deserves inclusion. The thing that I was going to push back against actually is I don't think that he's like the most ball dominant player even with Gordon Hayward being injured it feels like they've done stuff to to move him off the ball and put him in these situations where uh that he like and I'm even looking at it now like 27% of his shots are catch and shoot this is not Luka Doncic. I think heavy heavy usage is probably a better descriptor than ball dominant. I I kind of think he's higher up on this. If I was forced to choose right now just the three from this, I'm probably just disqualifying Zion to make the exercise easier. I think I would have Barnes, Cade, then Lamelo. Maybe Lamelo then Cade would be how my three goes. I might just go with this year's rookie of the year candidates. I think. Look, that's perfectly fair enough. Let's try to get through some of the the Twitter questions that we had uh we had a a few really good ones here so i want to make sure that i get to the to the absolute best ones so some live podcasting here i'm going through the wrong tweet that i sent out how's that that's really awesome here we are so we have this question from november in denmark and this is a bit philosophical but with all the pushback on advanced stats in the mvp conversation i was curious to hear your take on how the advanced stats do evolve slash change with new 
non-conventional player skill sets year to year. Love your pod. Thank you, November in Denmark. I think we continue to see the tweaks that we we have already seen just employed more frequently. I mean, so VORP has been a, a heavy discussion point on Twitter in recent days because there's a bit of a straw man argument that that's the case for Jokic to win MVP, even though it's entirely feasible to make a convincing case without ever citing a single advanced metric for Jokic. And, you know, by the same token, TPA and BPM and all that, but BPM has already evolved to be BPM 2.0. It's just not called that. It's still just called BPM and it's not called VORP 2.0. It's just called VORP. But when Russell Westbrook broke the metric because there was these, there were these unanticipated interaction effects between his rebounding percentage and his assist percentage, the formula was revamped because it, it was shown pretty demonstrably that the metric wasn't working as intended. And we're essentially seeing the same thing now where Jokic's numbers are supremely inflated because passing from the big man spot, while in the past it has been more valuable because there was more of a correlation between that and winning games because it's a non-traditional idea to, to have an offensive half-court set centered around a true five, it's giving him too much value for his remarkable best in the NBA passing. There's going to be a tweak to account for that because the NBA evolves and the metrics evolve with it. So, so many of these catch-all metrics are essentially developed by looking at correlations between certain types of play, certain types of basic statistics, their their, their effect on the winning efforts and working from there. So as those correlations change, because the NBA itself changes, we'll, we'll continue to see new ones developed and existing ones and pre-existing ones tweaked. So I don't know the timeline. I don't know what those tweaks look like, but I would not assume that the catch-all metrics that are most commonly cited and most frequently discussed during the 2021-22 season are the same as the ones that will be cited and discussed in the 2023-24 season. I think you can also just look at like how EPM has become a thing. And I, yeah, you pointing to the new metrics coming out. Yeah, there's the tweaks of the the staple metrics, but new ones coming out, just the sheer number of them that are now, I, they're either new or they're publicly available for the first time because we know that some of yeah. them have been available in some form, but behind the scenes, this was and another- it's, it's, Well, my last point on this is like, you know, at MBA Math, we use TPA, which is an offshoot of BPM closely tied to VORP. We will never say, that that is the most accurate metric out there. You know, we've we're quick to discuss the shortcomings that it has, specifically and, with defensive points saved. If I on could, this podcast, if I could interrupt you there, we did have a question on that from Jose Pinedo. Uh, Nikola Jokic isn't in the race for DPOI yet. MMS defensive points saved has him as the best defender in the league for a few right. seasons now. Why is basically the question. Yeah. So essentially, like the reason for that is because the defensive calculation in DBP and DBPM, the defensive portion of box plus minus from which defensive point saved is derived, isn't actually calculated by looking at defensive play. It's instead derived by looking at the correlation or it's looking at the total value added and subtracting out the offensive value because theoretically, offense plus defense equals total value. We're, re- we're way more confident about how valid the total part of the calculation is. The offensive one is typically by far the most accurate. And that leaves the defensive one as an estimate. And it's, it's positioned as an estimate. We, we do talk about fairly frequently on this podcast how it's just an estimate. And when it doesn't really correspond with what your eyes are telling you, that is the motivation to go out and figure out why. And oftentimes, you should trust your eyes in those situations, you know, evaluate as you will. Like Jokic is not the best defensive player in the league. He benefits from his inflated overall score, the defensive rebounds that he racks up, which while important are not as important as the metric might make it seem. Tying that back to the overall point, we use TPA not because it's the single best evaluation of a player, but because of the historical element to it because we can then use that to contextualize it against scores from previous seasons because it is relative to a league average baseline of play. So a lot of these newer metrics, they don't have the same historical ability. 
because the, 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 the input factors are so nuanced and drawn from, you know, play-by-play data that doesn't exist prior to 2000 or whatever the exact year is that we just don't have the ability. But because we, we do going all the way back to 1973 and then can form strong correlations between wind share data and box plus minus data, we can estimate it as even more of an estimate all the way back to the beginning of the NBA days. So that's why we've continued to use TPA, even knowing that it isn't the single most accurate catch-all metric and isn't even close. You know, you're not going to find an NBA front office using BPM, VORP, or TPA out there. It's the visualization aspect. It's the historical comparison aspect that has made it the choice on the Twitter account. Great answer. Great explanations. I'm going to segue right into the next one, which is from somewhat unbiased Rockets fan. Very extensive question. They ask, given the recent closeness of some MVPs, some clear winners that in retrospect were wrong, changing standards of accounts for legacy purposes, analysts still use who won awards as cementers of legacy, while second or third is forgotten, and while the gap between them can be minimal. Is there a better way to measure this for legacy? There is MVP shares, top 10 in different measurements per year, how often in top 10, et cetera. What are some thoughts to really begin measuring legacy in a consistent way? They did add accounting for individual stats, peak versus longevity, strength or lack of a team, regular season versus playoffs, showing up for every game versus coasting in a season, et cetera. And they finished up by saying one possibility now, Kawhi could come back just for the playoffs and then possibly could win it all, let's say. Then he has another ring and finals MVP while missing the full season. This then feeds into the rings culture season doesn't matter and it should. I I don't know where to start with this because it's like such an overarching question. Um, I, I, it can be boiled down to how would you like the discourse surrounding legacies to change or improve? Uh, focusing specifically on the MVP point, I think that highlighting MVP wins is way worse than highlighting MVP award shares which just tends to be a far more accurate portrayal of what actually happened during a season because it accounts for the discrepancies between placements in the voting hierarchy. So I would like to see that cited way more frequently. Uh, but ultimately, like, there's no simple answer to this question or to overall legacy discussions because it is so all-encompassing. Um, you, you, every ring is not the same. Every season is not the same. Uh, players who excel in the regular season and then you know consistently have unfortunate things happen to them in the playoffs, that shouldn't be held against them as much as players who are excellent in the regular season and then shirk the spotlight in the playoffs. Chris Paul is a great example where for so many years he was criticized because he'd never made it to the conference finals. He played better basketball in the postseason than he did in the regular season year after year after year after year after year. And it was hard to pin the blame on him for those playoff shortcomings. Maybe it's harder to build a team around a shorter point guard in playoff games, particularly five years ago and even further back because the the three-point explosion hadn't quite happened to the same extent that it has now. But even that is a great example of how every single one of these discussions has to be nuanced. And I think that's the biggest thing is that there's so much oversimplification of a player's career by citing one number, by citing one ring total, by citing whether they won a championship or anything. And and that's the most corrosive part of the overall discussion. If it were up to me and how I would change it is we would forget about the exact rankings because it's more important that LeBron James and Michael Jordan and to an extent, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are in the GOAT conversation, then how specifically you order them. Um, Seth Partnow has been all about this for a long time where he hates rankings, but he enjoys tears. And I think that's the evolution of the discourse where we're more focused on a non-specific, generalized placement than anything else. Uh, that all makes sense to me. I think it's really hard when you talk about legacy. It's also very hard to make cross era comparisons in general. But you know, unbiased Rockets fan, men, unbiased Rockets fan mentions ring culture, and that's like 
even the the conversation around Michael Jordan is reductive because mm-hmm. it cites his record in the finals when it's his actual legacy is so much more than that. I would just argue that there needs to be more nuance in general, and you need to understand who you're comparing. Tears are a great way to do that, um, or at least streamline that. But like, what are you making the case for exactly? Because you can't just make you can honestly, honestly. you can't even make up the presumption that like LeBron is going to be number two on everyone's rankings, even though there should be a clear top two players of all time to me. We also have to get away from the uh, the more egregious examples of. And I'm I'm not even going to name names here, but like where, because players were so popular, they're so high up on rankings. I think that's where the nuance comes in. Let's also have honest conversations about it and go into the details of what, okay, if someone's going to put Kobe ahead of, you know, when all said and done Durant, why? Aside from rings. Well, I just get into it. Why? That's fine. Like, I just want, I'm not even being being a troll here. So like, that would be, you know, if Kevin Durant's not going to have five championships like that's going to be mm-hmm. a conversation that inadvertent or not inadvertently but eventually just gets oversimplified so that's what i would just like to see is more nuance in general but i do think tears are a good way of inoculating us against having some pretty poor discussions on the subject in general and the ring culture in general is just bad because you, you end up a situation speaking of durant where if legacies are so inextricably intertwined with ring count of course you're going to join a super team and try to actually win a ring because you struggled to do so. And then you get criticized for doing that. And there's so much inconsistency within like arguments from the exact same people about how, you know, player X isn't any good because he didn't win a ring, but player Y's ring didn't count because there were too many injuries during the postseason they run. The so bubble. they lucked yeah. their way to a title. They were in the bubble. It's a Mickey mouse ring. You know, he joined a super team, so that ring doesn't really count. Those are not Kevin Durant, like only having half a championship ring or something because the two of them came with the Warriors. Yeah. Yeah. These are some lighter hitting questions. Simon asks Are the Hawks the team most likely to cause a shock and make it through the plan and then pass the first round? I feel like they're pretty easy no because the Nets do exist. I just, I don't believe in the Nets, but they have to be the. Who's the team most likely? I wonder, but I wonder if they count because they're technically in the play-in, but are we only thinking of like the nine and 10 seeds as the play-in teams because they're not in those top eight spots? Then I would say, yes, it's the Hawks pretty clearly to me. Yeah, because it's, it, it's not the Spurs, it's not the Pelicans, and it's not the Hornets. Okay, hear me out. Zion just all of a sudden comes back. He's just been Oof. healthy. That would be... That I am so I cannot wait to see the Pelicans next season. I know people have said, oh, the Clippers and Nuggets will be healthier. You still have the Mavericks and the Suns and the Warriors, but like the Pelicans with Zion could be ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Two years from now when he plays again, it's gonna look so good. Wow, that was really mean. All right, this will be our last one. Comes from the NBA Chicken. What are your thoughts on the Raptors versus Sixers matchup, which has been basically confirmed as of this recording? I don't, we don't feel bad about getting into it, and there'll be a, a playoff actual predictions. But how do you feel about this matchup? They also mention, I feel like the Raptors have the defensive versatility and coaching advantage. I think Embiid should will them to a seven game win. I'm assuming he means they mean the Sixers, but I wanted to know your thoughts, especially with the Tybal wrinkle. Who we do want to make it clear or should make it clear. I saw this in our Discord. That Tybal has can't play in Toronto because he's ineligible. I think it's because he was vaccinated, but hasn't received his booster. As insofar as that matters, get your fucking booster sure. if that's the real reason. Right, right. Just wanted to um, I'll be honest that I have not spent much time thinking about the specific matchups yet. Oh, good because uh, I have. just because we're we're recording this on the final day of the regular season, we still have the play-in tournament, so. I've kind of avoided thinking about those specifics, but just off the cuff thoughts. Um, I I would not be surprised at all if Toronto is able to win this because they do have that defensive versatility where they can throw a bunch of different bodies and a bunch of different looks at a Sixers team that is ultimately pretty dependent on a select few players. If you can if you can kind of employ the old blueprint against Dwight Howard's Orlando magic, where you just, you let Embiid score 50 points and make sure that Tobias Harris and James Harden don't get going because Harden has for as, for as good as his numbers have been since arriving in Philadelphia, he hasn't looked quite like the same player creating for himself. So 
if you want to let Embiid get his, frustrate the hell out of Harden, who has had playoff difficulties, and then make sure that Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey don't get going. I think that you have enough to squeeze out a long series win here. Would I pick Toronto straight up to win? I don't think so. But this one, this should be one of those four or five matchups that really could go either way. I think that I would pick as of right now the Raptors to win it. And it's not just because Ty won't be there, but their Philly's transition defense has been a problem for pretty much all of this year. Not having Tybalt for up to four games of the seven mm-hmm. is going to be a clear issue. Uh, Harden like has some of the counting stats, but he's just not looked right. And they're going to get absolutely trucked in the no and bead minutes if what's happened so far is any indication. The Sixers net rating when Harden plays without Embiid, minus 11.6 right now. And I get that he's doing, I don't want to say more heavy lifting, but they've made the clear decision of Tyrese Maxey and Embiid are going to play the, the no Harden minutes. So Harden doesn't have Maxey or Embiid for a lot of these stretches. You also get to the point where those stretches are going to become fewer and further between. That being said, it feels like Joel Embiid might need, knowing how Harden has struggled before in the playoffs and just knowing the different looks that Toronto can throw at them, that Embiid's going to have to score like 40, 45 points a game for them to have a chance in this series. I also just think like, even if Harden doesn't suck, the Sixers offense is going to have to work incredibly hard against this Raptors Mm -hmm. defense. And we saw it in their most recent outing, just like having to try and hunt for mismatches, not even mismatches, but ways to get Embiid the ball. And you can't because Toronto is just such a well-oiled machine when it comes to switching and there's, oh, Precious Achua switched on to James Harden. That's not actually a mismatch because Precious Achua moves so well. I would be concerned about Toronto's half-court offense. I think you know it's great that Siakam's not the same guy we saw in the bubble where it didn't even look like he could dribble through traffic in a straight line. There's so much more versatility to his handle now and his decision-making with it. They do have Fred Van Fleet, who I think has more command over the half-court offense. And then whatever, Gary Trent Jr. can be electric with the ball in his hands. They've tried to run stuff through Scotty Barnes as well. Their shooting can be spotty, though. Uh, and again, even with those creators that they have, I don't e- they don't have a traditional primary creator or maybe someone, as you would call an apex primary creator. So I get that concern, but this just feels like Toronto, people have been concerned about their depth. I don't feel like that's going to be an issue against Philly, who's sort of comparably shallow. And this team, too, their best players are used to playing a ton. They have three guys who are in the top 10 of minutes per game on the season. If everyone's healthy, I think I'm leaning towards Toronto here in six or seven games. This is definitely not the matchup Philadelphia wanted to see. And for what it's worth, Philadelphia has gone one and three against Toronto this season. Now, granted, Embiid did miss the game that was played back on November 11th, which resulted in a loss for the 76ers. And kind of a weird quirk here, as as much as you can take anything away from single game plus minus, in the two losses in which Embiid played, he was plus eight and plus seven, and they still lost. And the one game they won, he was minus four, and they won by five points. It That's kind of this, well, barring that last point, even though there was the report from ESPN that Ben Simmons like gave Embiid a pass when he was bad in that Toronto series where Philly literally lost that series because of the no Embiid minutes. And that's where it could break you. Let's say Embiid averages mm-hmm. 40 minutes a game. That's going to be, if that's a seven-game series, that's 56 minutes that you have to account for without Joel Embiid, which as of and right that's now- That's a lot of workload in what's sure to be a long season if you want to make a title run. I, but I'm just saying though, like th- that's more than a full game's worth of time without Embiid. You have every opportunity to lose that series. Now, maybe Tyrese Maxey surprised us. I think Tobias Harris has done a good job turning things around as well too. It, what it really comes down to is, do you trust James Harden to be, I can't even say the player- that he's been in the playoffs previously, but the player who closed the regular season before his injury last year with Mm -hmm. the Nets, do you trust him to be that player in the playoffs with Philly right now? I don't know that I do. I think he still has that level of play in him, but he just hasn't looked right for much of this year. And as you already mentioned, he has those, you know, previous playoff struggles that we have to work off here. I think the good news for Philadelphia too, is that Toronto has had no success in this season's matchups and really in previous years, either getting Embiid in foul trouble, because if you can do that, then the entire tenor of the series changes because that number you cited at 56 skyrockets, but he has, I think a combined six fouls in the three games that he's played against Toronto this season, despite them attacking him a lot. 
it's just the, the name that I haven't mentioned here too, though, is just like the Raptors have OG Ananobi if he's going to be healthy for that. So just, just like the, the defensive looks, they can really throw at Philly. I even think with Embiid and Harden sort of starts to like make the math difficult for the Sixers. I guess I could be wrong. So what you're saying essentially is that all of those stupid talking points about how you might not want to give MVP to a player who's going to lose again in the first round, that's actually about Embiid? Yeah, pretty much. That, why do you think he's not going to win the award? Because the media you, hates him. I guess we don't know the Nuggets matchup for sure yet, but if just in a vacuum, Nuggets or Sixers, who's more likely to come out of the first round? I, I have to know the matchup to answer that question. No, I asked you just in a general vacuum. That's not the, this isn't the game. <laughs> it, or it's going to be following, following the news that Murray and Porter probably aren't playing in the postseason. It's, it's most likely still them. And it's also like Denver has – it's a difference between, oh, you might play. As we're recording this, the scenario might be locked by the time we're done. Uh, actually, it should be locked in, in general, if I'm not mistaken. Whatever. You're going to play – like there's a difference between having to play the Warriors versus having to yeah. play the Raptors. So, yeah, I'm with you. This was fun. Um, glad that we got – as all these messages go off for me in the background, glad we finally got through our all-defense and all-rookie picks and through this mailbag. Hopefully we'll get back to having a weekly mailbag for everybody. Until next time, let me remind you to continue rating, reviewing, subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, downloading every, every episode helps us out a ton. Help us promote the pod, retweet everything we have out on Twitter about them, or just tell people about us. Word of mouth helps a bunch as well. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Join the Discord where your mailbag questions will be given greater priority. We missed some today off of Twitter because we went through the Discord first. And follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox, Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox, TikTok at Hardwood Knox. Links are in the podcast description, as I mentioned. We leave you all to shout out to the one, the only, playoff bound, Frank Nielakina. <laughs>